Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do. Where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And let me tell you what I watched. Okay. Well, there's a couple things I can't talk about. Oh, or fun. One, there's one that I I watched for the for other purposes, one that I can't talk about, and then I've got eight more. So I'm going to start with... Sergei Gainsbourg's directorial debut from 1976, Je t'aime moi non plus. Okay. Um, it means something like something along the lines of I love you, I don't. Okay. I think is what, what it means, or at least that's the English translation right. of the title. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. It feels very Sergei Gainsbourg, mm-hmm. not just in that he did the score, but also that um, it's kind of... Uh, perverse and provocative in a juvenile way that I don't really like very much. There's a lot of things I like about the movie, uh, including the cast. You've got, uh, Joe D'Alessandro is the, uh, the, the male lead and Jane Birkin, who was, uh, I don't know if were they married or they were just together at the time, uh, with, with Sergei Gainsbourg, uh, Serge, Serge or Sergei? Serge is how I've, uh, how I've heard. Didn't you see a like movie about him? I did. Uh, how do they say it in the movie? Well, it was a long time ago. Uh, I seem to I seem to recall Surge, okay, uh, but now I don't recall. Um, anyway, so Joe D'Alessandro and another actor named Hugus uh, Quester or something like that are a gay couple who drive a garbage truck through the countryside. They pick up things and drop off things, donations and garbage and these sorts of things. And they stop at this sort of uh, roadside bar slash truck stop, and the um, the bartender is played by Jane Birkin, and she's okay. very much a tomboyish sort. She's nicknamed Johnny. We actually never learn her real name, I don't think. Hmm. Uh, just everyone, all these shitty people in the small town. <laughs> they're all terrible people. Um, they call her Johnny because she's a tomboy. Hmm. Um, and so she and Joe D'Alessandro end up having the having a, a, a wild uh, uh, affair. And um, I, I just... Uh, Hold on. What are you doing? I'm looking up Joe D'Alessandro. Sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, He's somebody that I'm almost, that outside of the limey, the limey um, from, yeah. which of course he's, not to imply that he's bad in the limey, he's quite good, but his casting in the limey is meant to be a throwback to him being kind of this cult figure uh, in films in the 1960s and 70s. And I realize like, I haven't really seen any yeah. of them. So my association with him is very limited. So, um, yeah, they sort of have this, uh, this affair. She falls very hard for him because no one else, like everyone's mean to her all the time. Mm. Um, and, uh, I, there's a lot of things I like about the movie. I like Serge, Serge Gainsbourg's music. Uh, he's doing some, he's clearly having fun as his first, as his first time as a director. Well, you also got Gerard Depardieu, uh, oh, shows okay. up, um, uh, very briefly a couple of times as another, the only other, like gay man in this rural hmm. area. Um, but, uh, the movie is to couch it in modern terms. The movie is problematic. Um, okay. I, I mean, I, I, I definitely felt like the implication that this gay man is attracted to this woman because she's a tomboy is very simplistic and juvenile and not, yeah. n- not really. It's like, it's like, a, and I said this in my review because um, I reviewed it because it's been restored and it's uh, opening uh, this weekend, I think, in in, in New York, uh, playing theatrically. So I wrote a review, um, and it's like saying it's like assuming that a straight woman would be attracted to a, like a butch lesbian, yeah, because like, well, the the gender like there's a masculinity to it, but it's like no, no but this is a straight woman. She's like, yeah. Man. or you know, their boyfriend, you know, grows his hair out, and they're like. Ugh. I'm not, you look like a girl. I'm not, I'm not, I'm no, I'm no lesbian. Uh, Yeah. That's not how it actually, it actually works. So like, that's definitely weird. There's also something, I I think a homophobic stereotype you see a lot, uh, in, I was gonna say older movies, but not even that old movies is the equation of anal sex as a thing that is done by gay men. Like only like, (laughs) 
um, I'm thinking of movies like, well, there's a terrible um, scene in Irreversible where uh, mm. Monica Bellucci is raped by a gay man and she's anally raped. Yes. Um, but then even like in um, Universe Saw Top 5, the Chris Rock. I did uh, not. Even that, like Rosario Dawson's uh, boyfriend played by Anders Holm uh, is into like anal play and it's like, to the audience and to Chris Rock to everyone, that's just, it's like, oh, this guy's secretly gay. Um, and I feel like that's the thing. And so the, they have this, John Alessandro and Jane Birkin's characters have this, I don't even this like affair or whatever, but he will only have sex with her anally, which she doesn't enjoy, but does it because she's in love with him or whatever. It's, uh, it's a very sort of like schoolyard, uh, yeah. way of thinking about gender and sexuality, uh, and stuff. And, um, I don't mind a bit of, I don't mind a lot of provocation. Actually, I tend to be drawn to it, but when it's this dumb, this is why I'm not looking forward to seeing Joker. Cause oh, I yeah. like, and I know we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit. I like a provocateur, but not if it's just dumb. I want my provocateurs to be smart. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, we'll get so that's, why I'm, I'm, I'm really not looking forward to seeing Joker. I might not. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, all right, so that's my first one. Second movie for me is I saw, despite having only seen at random one episode of the television series because of Hey, Watch This, I went and saw the Downton Abbey movie. Oh, okay. Um, and what an odd choice. Uh, well, I, mean, I got a screening in sure, sure. Like, but um. <sighs> Here's Were you able to follow what was going on? Yes. Because okay. here's, here's the thing I'm going to say. I hated the movie, not because, and I feel like all the people who watched six seasons of Downton Abbey going mm-hmm. like, well, obviously you hated it. Yeah, yeah. You didn't watch. It's like, no, the movie does not like it. It spells out what you need. And mm-hmm. I'm also willing to forgive the stuff that like, I don't really know who Matthew Good's character is. I don't care. That's yeah. not the stuff that bothers me. The stuff that bothers me is, um, the movie it, uh, is, corny and very plain looking but also uh, this movie's politics are fucked up okay and i don't know if the show was like this mm. but it seems to like it's a movie about like the last days of this type of like manor house right. li- life- lifestyle where the upstairs downstairs thing where you had an yeah. entire family and an entire staff all like working together and, and not working together, living together. And then the staff working on behalf of the, and the movie is constantly insisting that this way of life and the tradition, the long held tradition of it, uh, is a great thing. And that like when the one, uh, yeah, the Don Abbey fans will, uh, crucify me for not knowing the names of the characters, but the one late, I don't know, Lady Grantham, I think, <laughs> I think it's what it is. Okay. Uh, when she's like, you know, this way of life, you know, our friends are selling off their houses. I'm thinking about it. And then like, someone's like, like talks her into like, no, you have to keep this going. And I'm like, why? And then like, you've got, uh, and the, oh yeah, the whole movie revolves around the, uh, a royal visit that the um, I was the watching King an, Queen. I was watching an SNL sketch uh-huh. that was like a trailer for the Down Abbey movie, and the characters themselves are commenting on how low the stakes are, uh, <laughs> and, and it uh, was quite funny. Well, um, yeah, so it's a royal visit. So like, you've even you've even got like people who are like it's it's. It, it's not the movie like on the one hand, yes, I disagree with the movie's class politics, but what really irked me about the movie is that it continually seems to be insisting that even if you, no matter what politics you hold, you should stifle them in favor of, uh, decorum and tradition or whatever. Mm. So like you've even got member of the uh, members of the staff who are maybe more progressive minded or whatever, but then, once it comes to like, Oh, the King and Queen are here and I hope my boyfriend still likes me. It's like, right. that's all, that stuff's all still more important than their petty little political ideas about, you know, the way that they are allowed to live. It's, it was, which it's is so, so interesting it, it to me so much because Julian fellows created Downton Abbey and he wrote Gosford park and 
both in the film in in Gosford Park and then in like his commentary for it, he definitely he he entertains a certain mournfulness on behalf of the characters, but he also seems to acknowledge like, oh yeah, this was not long for this world, and that's he didn't seem to be clinging to it quite so much. So maybe it's entirely possible that like several years ago now, and maybe as he's gotten older, he and has been just you know what not inundated immersed in this world that like there's a he's he's started to entertain the romanticism of it or i wonder maybe it's possible i mean maybe it's possible that yeah you're right or maybe it's just possible that the sort of glow of the six seasons or series or whatever of downton abbey are informing so maybe when the characters are taught in the movie you're talking about the way of life and the tradition and stuff they're actually just talking about the TV show that they miss being on. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Maybe it just got sort of transferred. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. All right. Um, I watched, I mean, it's, it's, I hate to say it. It's almost so slight. I, I feel like I shouldn't even bother talking about it, <laughs> but, um, I watched Scott Ackerman's between two ferns, the movie. Um, I didn't realize he was the director. Yeah, I didn't either until I saw the, the credit. It's tremendously funny. If you know Between Two Ferns, uh, the the quote-unquote talk show, then you'll... You got it. Um, it's that, um, with a very loose story built around it of, of Zach Galifianakis as a version of himself, and then he has got this crew, and they're going from... They're going across the country and interviewing random celebrities. Uh, and... <laughs> and stopping into uh in in i believe kansas city stopping into uh bear pit barbecue which if you live where i live you know it's just right up sepulveda uh <laughs> they they shoot in uh country folks of course um wow. and so all over this neighborhood all, i know you'd think i would have noticed but uh but they shoot a, people are shooting country folks so much that i don't even it doesn't even register anymore but um yeah, it's I mean it it feels so wrong to say this uh because it is very funny and I think it accomplishes exactly what it's trying to but who cares. Um and I know that's like the point of it is just to be funny and that's fine and it it accomplishes that but again it just I saw it and it just slipped from my mind immediately. I had to remind myself when making my list uh you know the other movies that I am that I'll be talking about I knew them. I knew that I had watched them. And then I, f- I forgot that I watched this. And if you enjoy Between Two Ferns, as I do, you will enjoy it. And it will be a perfectly f- enjoyable time uh, as you're watching it. And then it'll just evaporate into the air. Uh, but the character of Zach Galifianakis is just so fun uh, because it's so awkward and aggressive. Um but like uh in some ways the interviews are a little bit uh they're a little jiminy glick you know just where you're he's insulting the celebrities uh like he's talking with matthew mcconaughey and he's looking at his notes and he goes all right all right all right um sorry i'm, I'm reading the box office receipts for your uh, last three movies uh and it's like all right that's funny right and so he has a few of those and uh <laughs> Like it's it's some pretty solidly written stuff yeah. delivered uh, with that wonderful deadpan, um, um, and and I feel like I've just been insulting it. I really enjoyed it, but it's just not it's not the kind of thing that stays with you, and that's that's okay. That reminds me though of one of my favorite um, uh, jokes from the um, the series when he when he had he had Conan O'Brien on mm-hmm. right during that brief period when Conan O'Brien was the Tonight Show host. Right. And he goes, Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien. I've just named my favorite Tonight Show hosts in order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, and, and it's just some, it's also something of a, of a joke machine where they just like crank out those types of things and they're very funny as you're, as you're watching them. So, yeah, it's it's you could you could 
there are worse ways to spend i'm gonna say 80 minutes uh and uh i enjoy it i think you'll i, I think you'll enjoy it uh i watched a very similar thing also a movie culmination of a long-running series mm-hmm. i watched mr america okay. which is based on or is the extension of the on cinema at the cinema universe which mm-hmm. is tim heidecker and Greg turkington starting in 2011 started a podcast called on cinema in which they is slightly different versions of themselves review mm-hmm. movies then that became a web series and then it became an adult swim series and then that spun off to uh a, an adult adult swim action series that the tim heidecker on on cinema starred in as an action star um there was also a whole there's been a lot of live shows there's live streaming they do a live streaming oscar special every year then there was a whole thing and this gets us up to the movie there was a whole thing where tim heidecker the character tim heidecker organized a music festival in san bernardino county gave the the um the attendees like vape vapes vapor Mm -hmm. what are they called i don't know e-cigs i don't know what they're called uh uh um, vape things or whatever that he knew to be contaminated and uh, 19 teenagers died and then he was on trial and that was the trial was a six day live, like live streaming event. yes they acted on the whole yeah. trial he represented himself and he won and so now the movie is about how just winning isn't enough he's still so mad at the district attorney of San Bernardino County that Tim Heidecker is going to run is running for district attorney of san bernardino county i wish there was like just a, a like a blu-ray set that has all of that yeah so that you could just watch all of it yeah you know? I, they, they should put out it's its own cinematic universe at this point yeah it really is um and i've i've never seen like i, I kind of knew about it from because because this thing extends because tim heidecker and greg turkin have also as these versions of themselves called into the best show which is a podcast oh radio show that I listen yeah. to. so that's like really what i would uh glean from like like okay this is what i how i'm keeping up on on what's happened here yeah. because i know their arguments on the best show but other than that i didn't know any of it the movie does a pretty good job of explaining most of uh in other things that i didn't just mention um, cause everything I mentioned was about Tim Hattie's character. Greg Turkington has his own, uh, arc. Um, but so this movie is a movie about, yeah, Tim Heidecker is running for district attorney. The movie is kind of a documentary. There's like the, pre- it's a mockumentary mm-hmm. in that it's about a film crew following him on his quixotic, uh, yeah. run. And the movie isn't actually even, it's not really about him running for district attorney so much as it's him about him trying to get on the ballot. That's like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, he, uh, uh, so, but then at some points it is, it's a mockumentary, but also it's kind of like a hidden camera thing because a lot of the San Bernardinians or whatever that he's yeah. interacting with, as far as they know, this is just a guy who's running for district attorney. They don't yeah. know. They're not in on the joke. They're basically there's four actors really. Uh, maybe there's, but there's four main actors. There's Tim and Greg. Mm-hmm. There's the guy who plays the, the sitting district attorney, who was a fictional character. Um, and then there's the revelation of the movie to me is this woman named Terry Parks plays uh, Tim Heidecker's uh, campaign manager. Okay. And uh, there's lots of like jokes in the movie. It's never laugh out loud. Um, one of the jokes that uh, – is the joke that I'm going to call out that a number of other reviews have called out just because it's the most straightforward, like joke, joke type thing to actually, because so much of it is just like dry. Like it's funny that this is happening. Not that there's a joke. Okay. But one of the most straightforward jokes is that he says that the sitting district attorney is a rat. He keeps calling him a rat. And so his campaign slogan is we have a rat problem. And there's a, there's a montage of him going along to local restaurants and asking them to put up his sign in their windows, <laughs> just <laughs> restaurants with big signs in the window that say we have a rat problem. That's the most like joke, jokey it ever. Yeah. Gets. Yeah. Um, but this woman, Terry parks, uh, my real favorite part of the movie is the relationship between Tim Heidegger and Terry Park and, and Tony, uh, played by Terry Parks. It's, there's clearly like self-destructive. They're both codependent alcoholics. Um, 
Tim Heidecker is completely self-interested in every way. And yet these two weirdly care for each other. And it's not a romance. Mm -hmm. It's like these two become like friends and we just see it through their, their, their words and actions. They don't like declare anything to each other. Like, Oh, I really appreciate you being here. No, but you could just see these two, these two, uh, dysfunctional idiot losers sort of develop a, like an affection for each other. And this is like, there's a great running thing where Kistimatiker is this character. He's very, and I, 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 it's interesting to me the timeline of when on cinema existed, because I don't know at what point they decided that Tim Heidecker was a Donald Trump type figure, except not, not able to, even fake success. Yeah. Um, but he's very Donald Trump in that like, he's never wrong. He changes the story. He's, mm. he's, he's narcissistic. Um, and everyone's always out to get him is a big thing with him, which is also a big thing with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And yet one of the things that's so sweet about Mr. America is that the Tony character is so bad at her job is <laughs> constantly fucking up. And he, it's the one person in Tim's life, Tim's life that he won't, that he won't like make excuses for her or say it's nobody's fault when it clearly is. And there's like this sweetness at the core of the movie, which I don't think other reviews seem to have, uh, maybe other critics didn't feel it the way that I did. Hmm. Um, but that was to me the, the thing that really put the movie over the top for me, uh, was this central relationship. So I have no association with any of the backstory. Do you think I would still appreciate yeah, it? It explains okay. anything okay. you need to know. Great. Um, I mean, there are things that I think you won't, uh, that, that you won't get. So there's references to the fact that Greg Turgenson runs the Victorville film archive and that Tim Heidecker burned down the Victorville film archive. <laughs> okay. Um, and what you won't know watching the movie, which isn't important because you still get mm-hmm. just the Victorville film archive is just <laughs> the storage shed, the storage like locker where Greg Turgenson keeps his VHS collection. Got it. Um, but that's not explained in the movie, but okay, you don't I need see. to know that. You just need to know that Tim burned down the Victorville film, <laughs> Victorville film archive that Greg runs. Um, Anyway, uh, I'll mention that I saw the movie at the Alamo Draft House. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, first time I've ever been to an Alamo Draft House because I've never lived where there is one. Yeah, I still have never, after all these years, I still have. Um, and I've, I mean, I've talked so much shit about the Alamo Draft House for a number of reasons that, like, I don't think eating during movies is the way that it's right. supposed to happen. And also because the uh, the league family, or the, the couple, the leagues who sure. run the Alamo Draft House um, have... Uh, been not just accused they've clearly done some pretty questionable uh, shit in, mm-hmm. in terms of how they've handled sexual harassment claims no. uh, uh, at, at their at their locations um, uh, that said I, I it's a very comfortable seat yeah the soft pretzel and cheese that I had was very tasty okay um, healthy pour on the scotch that I got. So like, <laughs> I guess if you're going to do this thing that I'm not on board with, at least do it right. Yeah, it seems exactly. to be pretty good in for a penny in for a pound. Yeah, know? exactly. Uh, all right. So I have another one to do. Yes. Okay. Um, and then I watched the 1928 silent film that flicker alley just put out a French silent film called La Jean, which means money okay. not to be confused with 1983's La Jean directed by Robert Bresson, oh. which I also reviewed, uh, when criterion put it out. Okay. Um, no, this is 1928's, uh, uh, La Jean. It is, uh, it's, there's a lot of things that I enjoy about the style and presentation of the movie and the, and the, and the camera work that we've talked about this, like the, I mean, this is 28. So you're overlapping with the sound era mm-hmm. at this point, but like the end of the silent era was a really great, fascinating time that a lot of yeah. interesting things were, were being done that got kind of snuffed out by, by sound. And, you know, eventually the camera was kind of caught up again, but, yeah. uh, but you've got some really cool, like it's, kind of rare to see like essentially handheld shots hmm. in silent movies, but you've got this great, like, um, this one guy's, uh, the antechamber to his office is a circular room with a map of the world painted mm-hmm. on it. And it's 
the kind of door where you don't know where the door is. Yeah. You don't need the kind of wall. Yeah, yeah. You like, and so there's just a character like looking at the map and the, the camera is like following him mm. around. It's very cool. Um, but it takes place, uh, in, in France, um, among, it's basically this, like this one guy owns a bank and he, is failing his bank is failing and so as a publicity stunt he bankrolls this guy's this pilot this like uh charles Lindbergh type pilots mm-hmm. uh except not uh nazi sympathizer as far as we know um uh bankrolls they his, cut like, a couple scenes uh, out of it yeah well it's 1928 so yeah. who knows what this guy would have sure. become um and this guy's gonna make an attempt to set some sort of solo flying mm-hmm. world record and so the um the uh the banker um yeah he funds this thing as a publicity stunt and then word starts to come through the plane has crashed and the guy has died Mm -hmm. and then the banker finds out that's not true that's it literally says fake news which like threw me it took me out of the movie that's strange he calls it fake news but um but he doesn't tell people he ends up he uses the death to manipulate the stock market even more. Oh, and all meanwhile, he's trying to like Mac on the pilot's wife while he's away. Um, she's, she's in many ways, kind of our lead character actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, a bunch of shit happens and whatever. Um, I couldn't follow a lot of the plot because a lot of it is like, uh, finance type stock type stuff right, where I'm yeah. like, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it works, but I get that this guy's uh, a piece of shit and he's lying to make himself richer. Um, like I said, the movie's two and a half hours long. It feels, uh, it, it feels it. Um, okay. but there's a lot of cool stuff in it. And, you know, I always have to mention, um, when I mention these, these old movies being put on, on Blu-ray, the restoration is great. It, mm-hmm. it, the movie actually uh, looks absolutely magnificent. Yeah, Flickerelli always does the best job they can, it seems like. I mean, I a lot of times Flickerelli, I don't think, are bankrolling the the restorations themselves. Mm-hmm. This is, they'll be done with local or with uh, small, I think this was like uh, some sort of French like government fund, I think, might have uh, uh, paid for some of this restoration. Anyway. Uh this is going to be a weird, a weird thing to say right now, but it's just a, it's reminded me of this from an, uh, you know, an analogy standpoint. Um, I never read, uh, Atlas shrugged, but one of the things that I know about it is that like trains are a big deal. Okay. Um, and I remember reading, I like trains. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe I should, uh, this novel a shot. Well, I did read the fountainhead and, if I were an architecture person, I think I would have enjoyed it a lot on that level. Cause she clearly did a lot of research. So my guess is she probably researched trains, but I also know that, uh, <clears throat> I, I read reviews and people sort of made fun of the idea that trains are such a big deal in the world of the book as though airplanes aren't around anymore. And part of me is like, no, just, uh, having not read the book, I'm in, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. The mm-hmm. idea that there's almost this alternate universe where this other thing was not created along those lines. I, I find myself not regularly, but every once in a while thinking about and not, not romanticizing, but thinking about what if sound did not come about when it did, what if it was, what if it came out 20 years later Mm. and like, what would film from a visual standpoint, what would it have looked like if this other thing had not come along to obviously advance it in in some ways and stunt it in others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, you know, when you look at some of the films of the, of like 27, 28, and you're just like there, this is my, the go-to. I remember, I, I seem to recall, uh, one of our instructors back at Columbia mentioned this, but like you look at the last laugh mm-hmm. and they're doing, it's go, it is a gorgeous film. And Murnau is doing stuff with the camera that you just hadn't really seen at the time before. And really Chris fear. And then, you know, you cut that off, uh, so that we can have our precious microphones. Uh, so mad. <laughs> I know, but, uh, and so it's just one of those things that like, obviously you can't create this other world, but it just makes you wonder like, what would, what would film have looked like, uh, literally and figuratively, um, if sound had not come along when it did. Uh, but anyway, okay. So I did watch Todd Phillips Joker. Um, it was suggested to the uh, faculty 
by some of the higher ups in the film department that uh, we watch the Joker because uh, the students are going to. And we can lead that discussion uh, just in case things uh, take How, a turn. When you say suggested, do you mean like, quote unquote, suggested, like you felt like you had to? Um, I mean, I was probably going to see it anyway. Uh, I, the, I, it's not that they're going to check up on it, but it was more like we get all kinds of emails from the from the not merely the department, but the, the school in general saying like, Hey, here's a trend that we're noticing amongst students. Uh, feel free to lead a conversation about that in your classrooms. It's that sort of thing. Um, just again, it's, it is a actual suggestion, but I wasn't given the, the cultural conversation being had. I'm not surprised that we, that we, that that was suggested. So, um, so yeah, uh, it was a film I was going to see anyway, but maybe not immediately. Uh, I'm glad I saw it. It is in many ways good. Uh, it is, I think the cinematography is very solid and definitely seems to take its cues from what the character is doing and how he's feeling and that sort of thing. Um, the uh, the overall story arc from a structure standpoint is pretty solid and a very clear through line. A lot of the technical, a lot of the filmmaking elements are are there. Um, I will say though, as I was watching the movie, I had a very clear. I thought a very clear thing, and it was thank God for Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. and I don't just mean in this movie. I mean, in general, when I think of him in the master, I think of him in even inherent vice, a movie I didn't love. And then just how different he is in her. And I just realized like, thank God that there are actors and directors that are willing to just put their public persona on the line to look as unappealing as possible, um, as unappealing as the character requires and just committing fully in a completely unselfconscious way. Thank God for that. Like I'm really, and this film really, I, I appreciated walking Phoenix already, but you watch this and you feel like, yeah, he is, he is going to, he's going to find what makes a character tick. If only, the film were willing to go that deep. Hmm. The film, I would say doesn't quite earn his performance. You know what I mean? Like he's, it's not that he's like doing his own thing. Uh, he's still tapping into what is there, but I feel like he sees some, it's, it's sort of like when you, uh, in your review, you write like, Oh, the film got me thinking about this and this and this. And then the director like makes a statement. You're like, okay, all right. So you were thinking maybe at best two levels down, I was around five or six, not to, (laughs) not to praise me, but I feel like whatever depth is there, Joaquin Phoenix finds it and expounds upon it. There are a couple of things that I like, but I don't know if Todd Phillips intended um, in a, in an almost, in a very strange, almost chance, the gardener situation, the character of Arthur Fleck who becomes Joker, he is mentally ill. He acknowledge it, acknowledges it. The film acknowledges it. Uh, and he operates on that level and just does, uh, what he's going to do, but he happens to be doing this at a particular time in Gotham city. And so there are people on the left and people on the right that see what he's doing and they read into it more than he ever intended. And as, and as a function of that, so it's this idea that like, he's sort of maybe not actively, but that his image is being used sort of as this symbol, um, which, you know, in the world of Batman, the idea of becoming a symbol, uh, Mm -hmm. so that you can give hope to people like that's not unheard of. Uh, but what I think is, is at the, at the core of it. And again, I don't know if Todd Phillips intended this is that when you have both sides looking at this character and saying, I like what he's doing, or I don't like what he's doing. And they're only looking at that. 
and essentially how they can ex- exploit that for their side. The one thing that is absolutely not happening is that character getting help. Uh, and this is a character that desperately needs help. He needs somebody to step in and show him kindness and treat him. When I say help, I mean professional help, yeah. not merely someone to give him a, a nice pat on the back. Uh, and so this idea that uh, of being used sort of as a pawn, but finding, but then choosing to embolden himself as a result of that. It's like, no, this is all the worst thing that could happen. And this is a situation where like society is failing this guy, not in an incel kind of way, but in a systemic kind of way. Um, and I think, I think that Joaquin Phoenix is finding that. I think the rest of the cast is finding that. I don't know. And it, it feels almost shitty to, to, to gather all of this from the film mm-hmm. and yet not attribute it to the filmmaker. But it's just the way the film is operating feels very shallow. And yet everything I just said does have a depth to it, but it feels incidental almost to the point of being accidental. Um, and that's, and, and maybe it isn't. Maybe everything I just said is something Todd Phillips absolutely intended. There is some level of purpose to the arc that they give this character. Uh, so I would say I, would, I recommend it because there's definitely a lot of stuff to latch on to artistically and thematically. Um, but I did find myself resistant to it in a way that I'm usually pretty good at blocking out cultural noise. And there was a lot of cultural noise around this movie. I'm usually pretty good at removing that. And I think I am doing that here as well. So it's a film that I, I think I would recommend because not merely because of the larger conversation, but because there's enough there to recommend, especially that performance. But I also don't want to suggest that the film is only about that performance. I'll be talking about that in a moment um, with a different movie. Uh, so I, th- I would, I think I would give it a, 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 a recommendation. I think you should, I would like you to see it. I really would like your take on it. Cause I think there would enough be enough for you to latch onto and maybe it be enough for you to get angry about. Um, but I, I, I think of you as a Joaquin Phoenix fan mm-hmm. and if for no other reason, and there are other reasons, but if for no other reason, I'd recommend it based on that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm nervous, but I also kind of know that I, I, I'm going to want to see it before the yeah. end of the year. And you're, so can, uh, you, who knows? You could, you could hate it. You could love it. I feel like you're more inclined to hate it or you could feel like I, like I do. Um, but I definitely think you will have a take and I would like to hear what it is. All right. Well, I do have a take on this next movie that I saw. It's called the cloud capped star. It is an Indian movie from 1960 directed by Ritwik Getak. And it has been put out, put out on Blu-ray by the criterion collection. Uh, And this is uh, a a really lovely, well, lovely is maybe the wrong word because the movie's um, clearly a tragedy. Um, But it doesn't start out that way. I think that's, probably true of a lot of tragedies they have to start out happy before everything falls apart sure uh and the movie's about a young woman it starts out feeling more like an ensemble really it's about a young woman who's in like a college and she's got these plans to get this certain job out of college and then she's got a sweetheart that she wants to marry when she gets out and then her her older brother um wants to be a professional singer and the local, the people in their neighborhood are all like, Oh, this guy's such a disgrace. He doesn't do his duties. He doesn't take care of his family. He just walks around singing all the time, but she believes in him. She believes mm-hmm. that she can support him. Uh, he's a good enough singer. He can go out and make a career for himself and, and, and make the whole family proud and support them. And, uh, it's just a really sort of happy, very humanistic portrayal of this, uh, like uh, ex-urban, suburban, like neighborhood, and then this woman's father gets into an accident and can't work or he can't walk, and uh, and so she ends up having to leave school to come essentially take care of her father in the household, and one by one, all of her dreams go from being deferred to just dying on the vine Mm -hmm. and uh she develops tuberculosis and the movie just like uh it it, it, (laughs) 
Um, do you, uh, did you, I feel, I know because, uh, of that this guy's not someone we're praising, uh, and for good reason, but did you watch Louie, the TV show? Uh, no, I didn't. I watched the first episode and I found it very uncomfortable. So I stopped. Well, there's an episode, I can't remember what season it's in, but he is talking to an agent or a producer or a director or something about like a movie he wants to write, which is just a movie about a guy that bad things happen to and they keep happening and they keep getting worse and they never get better and nothing could ever happen. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of, uh, what happens in this movie, except that sounds like I'm warning you away from it. It actually is, I think very beautiful, very beautifully acted. It, uh, flirts with being a full fledged musical at times because Mm -hmm. the the older brother character is constantly singing and the emotions are so deeply felt. It has that musical type of feeling. It really does feel like a tragedy in like, old school like greek uh terms it reminds me uh there's a bit as someone who uh has uh struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts there's a uh there's a norm mcdonald special that's on netflix and he has this bit that i actually found tremendously comforting uh where he talks about suicide and then people are like oh i I can't imagine why anyone would want, uh, I don't understand why anyone would, would do this. And he goes, you don't. <laughs> and then he says, and I took the time to remember, I was like, you don't know about life, how it only disappoints and gets worse and worse until it ends in a catastrophe. And, uh, and the idea that he's incredulous, like everybody yeah. else, they don't mean to be that, but like, they're incredulous at the notion that anyone would ever want to exit this life. And he, I, if I found it oddly empowering that he was incredulous in the opposite, uh, in the opposite direction. Uh, but yes, so that, uh, (laughs) that moment from Louis sounds very, sounds very funny, but obviously, as you mentioned, like there can still be tremendous beauty within tragedy, even if it's not a literal beauty, um, which sounds like it shouldn't be, but it is like, you know, uh, like a movie. I mean, it's not the most visually dynamic movie, but like a movie like uh, Manchester by the sea, it is not an upbeat. Fi- right. It's funny sometimes, but yeah. it's not an upbeat film and it doesn't have an upbeat ending. Uh, and in fact, the more, the more it goes on, the more you realize just how horrendous this, this story is. Yeah. And yet somehow within the realization of it, there's a real, hope and and again a beauty that uh that can't really be denied all right so from that so that movie was called the cloud capped star uh from there to a new movie a documentary called the cave this has nothing to do with the 2005 uh spelunking thriller the cave. Uh, um, this is a documentary about a um a hospital in a city in syria that has essentially been besieged for five years straight at the, the these people have been living under constant hmm. but the, the city itself is you you see these shots of it it's bomb bombed out you see more bombs dropping uh and the hospital or really it's called the cave because the only part left of the hospital that's um that that is usable most of the hospital is either not standing anymore not mm-hmm. usable is there's like the underground like the basement floors oh, okay uh and so it follows mostly like three or four doctors in this hospital um just as they um deal with occasional uh, but not not occasional occasional sounds like it's a rare uh but pretty regular waves of people coming in because coming in in large numbers at once because bombing has happened again. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, uh, another super depressing movie, very bloody. There's a lot of, in this, you know, it's a documentary. And there's a lot of real death that you see, uh, on screen. Um, and it's from the, I didn't see last man in Aleppo. It's from the same director. Oh, okay. Um, but it does give you a sense of, I don't think hope is the right word. It makes you angry okay. that this is happening to these innocent people. You know, can you imagine just five years of your city being bombed? There's nothing like, there's nothing that we would recognize about our lives. You know what I mean? If, yeah. we, if we were living under that, 
Uh, and yet the fact that these, these doctors, mostly women are hanging on to their, their humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's like, uh, there's like, it's weird that there are moments of levity in, in oh, the movie. Sure. There's like one of the, this one woman, like there's not a big staff. So there's one woman who's both a doctor and the one who basically cooks massive amounts of food what they have, they have very little food, but they have yeah. like some rice and sauces and stuff. And she cooks big things of rice for the patients and the staff. And one other, I don't know if he's a doctor or a nurse or an orderly or whatever, um, like teases her about the rice being like undercooked or doesn't have enough. And <laughs> she like, it's funny, but she's also like, are you kidding me? I'm making, <laughs> I'm making food for scores of people yeah. with, you know, we have, there's no deliveries coming in. The city's under siege. Um, and it has been for five years, but it's still like a funny yeah. moment. It's, it's, a uh, very touching, very humanitarian. Um, but also very infuriating. Yeah. All right. Okay. So next up for me is, I want to make sure I, I get the name correct. Nisha Ganatra's Late Night. Oh. Is that how, I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I don't it, remember. But, uh, yeah. I saw um, this movie. Yeah, I know you did. Um, so just as I was saying that in Joker, I mean, obviously, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is the the main event, but there's enough stuff around the film to, to sort of additionally recommend it. He doesn't carry it solely on his shoulders. Unlike Emma Thompson with Late Night. She's, Which is funny because it's such a great cast. It's a great cast. Uh, yeah, and and, exactly and all of them are doing fine work. And yet somehow uh, this film, I, I say somehow, it's because Emma Thompson's such a magnetic performer, but she just seems to tap into something within her character that just gives immediate depth to her. And I'll say this, I'm a fan of Mindy Kaling as a standup. I enjoyed her when she was on the office. Uh, I only saw a few episodes of uh, the Mindy project uh, and enjoyed that somehow. And so, and when I heard that she had written this, I was actually very excited. Um, And then when, and then I forget that she's in the movie. Like there will be long stretches where we get back to like I'm and I like I'm following this this well known late night talk show host like on her way out because she just is in a rut. Like I'm watching that and we cut to this woman who is like worked at a chemical plant and now is a writer. I'm like, wait, what, what are you doing in my movie? I know you wrote it, but you should have written it better. Uh, or, and it sounds terrible, but it it also might be a function of screen presence. I enjoy Mindy Kaling as, as a screen presence, but when she has to share the screen or when like she is sort of fighting for attention with Emma Thompson, who I think is a more experienced actress and in, in Kaling's own script is given more to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mindy Kaling's character just can't compete. And so the movie it's, it's so, and it's also, it's structured in a weird yeah. way. It's cut in a weird it way. It really is. Do you know awkward. what I mean? It's like very it's very awkwardly edited. There's a, there's a, a sequence. I almost called it a comic sequence. It's supposed to be a comic sequence. Sure. It doesn't work in which, Emma Thompson, who's been, you know, a rich lady for a long time, has to walk up, uh, like, yeah. to a walk-up apartment. She has to walk up a number of stairs, and it's yeah. supposed to be funny, like, how long it takes and how tired she's getting. But it's edited so poorly that none of the co- the comedy doesn't yeah. come through. It's just, it's awkward the entire time. And there are several sequences. It's so strange. Uh, so, I lecture about film aesthetics, and when I get to editing, I... And, and actually, like, uh, at, I was just at a film festival and I was talking to filmmakers and they were asking, like, what advice I could give. And, and the advice that I usually give is just in, it, just immerse yourself in movies and you will just become in the same way that if you go to another country and just live there, you just start to learn the language instinctively. If you watch a lot of movies, 
ideally you will start to just understand the natural rhythms of movie making you watch late night this is not an inexperienced director and yet somehow like even i watched with jen even jen who doesn't necessarily think about movies the way you and i do even she's like this feels weird it doesn't it certainly doesn't feel funny yeah it it has such an odd rhythm to it and it's also poorly lit poorly lit it's and it just seems like such an unfortunate waste of of resources i'd yeah. say specifically that cast I, and i remember saying to a friend of ours that there's there's a reason the only two publicity stills you ever see for the movie are either the emma thompson behind the desk or emma thompson in silhouette standing because those are the only two properly lit shots in like the yeah. entire movie and also there's stuff like the like the story with hugh dancy and now we also have the thing with john lithgow and like are you trying to be everything the movie like it's and then obviously hugh incorporating is doing something good though i think he is doing i think he's he's making a character that i think on the page is like oh this guy seemed like a good guy turns out he's a bad guy and he makes him a more complex character than that he does i wish the film would allow him more time to do that or 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 just get rid of one or the other yeah i mean it's it's weird it's how is it possible for everything to seem like a distraction from everything else uh and maybe it's ultimately that like Emma Thompson, the way her character is written and the way she's played is so dynamic that I just wish, I just wish that the, I almost, in a way I almost wish the filmmakers realized what they had with her and realized we need to completely reconfigure this. Mm-hmm. It's about her. Now we can cut entire characters, entire storylines. It is her story now. And boy like i had heard that the film wasn't that great uh but i thought i might enjoy it anyway uh i was tremendously uh, emma thompson hey when it comes to the bps i'm putting her in, in lead actress right oh, now okay. uh i haven't seen that much she might get bumped out but uh, but the film in general was such a disappointment well that's a perfect segue into the next movie okay. for me which is a movie that i was very much looking forward to because one of the movies that has come out in the States this year um, that I loved uh, is Tom Harper's Wild Rose. Mm -hmm. And we get another Tom Harper movie in the same year, uh, The Aeronauts. Okay. Oh, right, yes. Starring Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones, who um, Which, yeah, you did say that you were really looking forward to this one. because I like them both as actors, even though I think they have a terrible track record at selecting roles and selecting projects. And unfortunately that track record continues. Um, uh, the aeronauts is, uh, it's interesting. Like I, I, I find that the movies that I hate the most are not the ones that are stupid or poorly made. Like a movie like, late night that is poorly made. I just like, I'm like, yeah, I didn't care for that, but I don't hate right. it. What I hate is this big, empty movie like the aeronauts, which okay. is loose, very loosely based on true stories. Eddie remains playing a real character. Uh, James, uh, Gloucher, I think was his name. Um, an early sort of, uh, person who studied, used balloons to study, uh, weather. Mm-hmm. And Felicity Jones is playing a, a fictional character who's apparently a sort of like composite of some real life characters, but none of those real life characters ever had anything to do with the real life James Gloucester. So that's also weird too. Not that I care, but it's also weird. Like if you're going to fictionalize her that much, yeah. Fictionalize him, just give him a different name. Like it's weird that he's playing yeah. a real character. Uh, anyway. So, um, yeah, they go up in this balloon, they go way up, they have all sorts of adventures. It's a big, like CG sort of thrilling spectacle hmm. thing. It reminded me a lot of gravity, which is a movie that I at least enjoyed the experience of watching. I don't, sure. I don't think about gravity very much that yeah. <laughs> anymore. Um, but this was an even dumber, uh, <laughs> gravity. It's well, it keeps breaking it up with one thing. Gravity didn't do is it didn't constantly have flashbacks to her past. Right. But this is, the movie takes which place I over, always appreciated. Yeah. I, I like that you're stuck with her. Yeah, this movie um, takes place over the course of this one wild balloon ride, um, but it keeps flashing back to how they both came to to be there. But um, the movie's just so 
full of itself and full of shit. <laughs> because I knew it right, like right from the beginning, because basically no one wants to fund James Glaucher's uh, Glacier, maybe is his name? Anyway, um, this balloon trip, no one wants to buy him a balloon or fund the, fund the trip because no one believes the things that he's researching are real. Mm. But of course, so the movie sets us up to feel smug because we know he's right. Yeah. And we are the only ones. Uh, Glacier, it looks like. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I hate that already. The movie is, is yeah. so guiding us to like, hey, don't you feel good about yourself? Look at, look at all these assholes yeah. who, who won't, uh, who won't fund his balloon, uh, ride that yeah. we know is going to happen and know that he's right about. It's Billy Zane insisting that Picasso <laughs> yeah. is not going anywhere. Yeah. So the movie is like a whole bunch of those characters. Um, and, uh, uh, and then Felicity Jones plays someone who's, um, more of a, showman she understands that the part of getting the funding for a balloon ride is making a spectacle out of it and yeah. um i would say the opening scene of the movie in which uh, we're introduced to to her is the best part because she's really putting on a show for the spectators mm-hmm. the spectators who have come to see the balloon launch and i was like oh this movie's gonna be fun felicity jones is yeah. uh hamming it up in a really fun way and then like, i find her to be a very charming actress in yeah general. but then at once they leave the ground it stops it stops being okay 100 uh and then it's just another just hour and 30 minutes of uh just a movie being so full of itself and then these <laughs> manufactured thrills and uh of course like a movie can be effective in some ways and I still don't like it. I have a heights thing. So right. there were parts that I was like, I can't, I can't quite look directly at the screen. I can't Interesting. like, but that happens to me in a lot of movies. It happened to me with the skyscraper with Dwayne the rock Johnson. <laughs> well, that, and I like, yeah. I actually like that movie a little bit. Uh, I, I think I had a lot of fun with skyscraper. Yeah. Uh, this movie doesn't have, um, the, uh, it is too full of itself. It doesn't have, have the gravitas of skyscraper. <laughs> no, it's trying too hard to have gravitas at every, mm. at every turn. That's, uh, and it's unearned. Um, yeah, I really, uh, really didn't like the aeronauts. Okay. And my final movie this week is a movie I really did like. Uh, I am very, I have seen very few films by Yasujiro Ozu. Oh, okay. Uh, and one I hadn't seen, but I always wanted to because I love the title is the flavor of green tea over rice. So I watched <laughs> the flavor of green tea over rice, um, which, uh, is about what I, I feel like, um, I, I, feel like I, only, I haven't seen that many Ozu movies, but they're mostly about like, a middle-class family with her, with a uh, slightly rebellious daughter, not really rebellious. Like yeah. she's not going out and like torching buildings and shit, but she doesn't right. want to have an arranged marriage. Yeah. It's basically, it's, it, it, I but, feel like you could do this when, with any filmmaker and, and it sounds so shitty, but like you just sum up what they are where it's yeah. like, it's like, Oh, is it about a family being quiet? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So this is about, uh, it, it, it's kind of about the, this, these two parents relationship with their, their, um, the, their daughter who's a young woman and they're trying to arrange marriage for her. But it's also about their marriage and what they, you know, because they were in arranged mm-hmm. marriage, and it's about them sort of examining, uh, and 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 Ozu inviting us to examine like, what have they made of their lives? Like, are they yeah. are they happy? Is or are they unhappy? Is there a reason why this young woman is so opposed to arranged marriage beyond just principle? Is it because she looks at her parents and sees a couple who were like little more than acquaintances? <laughs> yeah, um, or is there some sort of affection there that maybe has just gotten? muted over the years of the marriage and um the movie is really gorgeous and so much of what's so gorgeous about it i think is in the dialogue the way that um sometimes there is very poetic dialogue you know there is discussion of the flavor of green tea over rice mm. uh, in a couple of parts but also a lot of it just seems, pro or con are they saying it's uh, a pro, good fl- pro. pro okay got it um uh but also so much of the dialogue seems almost like like so relatably banal and just like either a couple or like the the, the wife often gets together with her with her friends they 
lie to their husbands about where they are. They know mm-hmm. their some of them know their husbands are having affairs, and they're like, "Oh, I'm going to get him to buy me a new dress mm-hmm. uh, because of this affair or whatever." And, but they have just these like casual conversations that have nothing to do with the plot, but no. are uh, so immersive and so fun to listen to. Um, there's also a line, it's early in the movie, a line that I laughed out loud at really hard, um, which is the young woman who doesn't want to get married is going to go to uh, see a movie that stars Jean Marais. And the her mother's friend is like, you're like, ooh, Jean Marais, what do you like best about him? The top half of his face or the lower half? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the movie is full of like small, funny, like really yeah. moments like that. And I think that's why... Um, because it's so, uh, to use a film critic uh, cliche word, it's so quotidian that the moments where suddenly it becomes, to use another film critic quote, uh, uh, cliche word, uh, elegiac, um, it, it's it's very powerful. Uh, that's all the movies I watched. You got one more? Yeah, it's a it's a rewatch. It's a film that I know you don't particularly care for, and there's Uh-oh. a lot there's a lot of stuff I don't care for, and yet I do find myself rewatching the movie. And this time, something struck me. Uh, it is Mike Judge's Idiocracy. Okay, um, I see, I've only seen it once. Okay, uh, when it was first out on video, I guess. It is a tremendously watchable movie, partially because it really is just a series of sketches uh, built around a, a premise. They're like, okay, it's society that's just incredibly dumb, and we have a, a completely mediocre person who suddenly is a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, it's a it's a perv- it's a great it's a really good premise, um, and in watching it. I do often find the film ve- funny, but also very, very stressful. Um, in the same way that when you when you watch some version of Alice in Wonderland, it's just like I'm trying to be a good, normal person, and all these assholes are ruining it for me, and and they're all like this, um, and so it has that quality to it. Uh, but this time, I noticed something a little bit different. Um, and mate, oh boy, this is gonna sound mean. Yeah, all right. So I just went to this film festival, and it was it, it's a it's a Christian film festival, and the vast majority of the people that I talked to there were very nice and very enth- and very enthusiastic about film as an art form. Um, that said as tends to happen with this group. Uh, there are movies that they have heard about and quickly, and they just know about controversy or whatever. And so if you mention it, like they just will clam up. Um, and then there's just, and there are just certain lines of conversation that you, certain paths you can't go down with certain people. Mm-hmm. Other times, like invariably you find the ones just like you and I did when we were doing bus stop while everyone else was singing their show tunes on the bus, uh, or whatever you and I are like here in the lounge, we're just going to watch the Simpsons. Uh, like you find the people that are kind of like you yeah. in situations like we that. We did a production of William Inge's bus stop. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Stop, um, no, we were just hanging out at bus yeah. stops, uh, <laughs> looking for love. Um, and so, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so it can be very frustrating. And, and so watching idiocracy shortly after that, I don't mean to imply the, that these people were idiots. It's not that it's, it's, it's really just not that different than like the, the Alice in Wonderland thing where there's just, there are things that you accept as true. And then you are surrounded by people that are just questioning it because that's just what they do. Um, and this can be a political thing. It can be a spiritual thing. It can be an artistic thing, whatever it is, just like people that have just been talking with other people like them for so long that there's just such a frustration with that. But in watching idiocracy this time, you really, after a while you come to realize that the film does have actually a fair amount of 
uh, affection for many of the uh, dolts <laughs> that we are looking at. Um, and that the actors, it sounds strange and I'm, and I'm probably reading more into this. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll take the credit that I was going, that I'm perfectly willing to steal from Todd Phillips. I will give to Mike judge and I will, uh, the way these characters respond to the, the main characters appearance of intelligence is with anger. But underneath that is a very real fear, uh, a, a fear of where they are right now. And the fact that they can't really get out of it. And then he comes along and he, he is saying stuff that makes sense. But if you look at what the actors are doing, almost invariably, when he suggests something, there's a look in their eye that first is like, Oh, that sounds weird to me. And that is a little bit scary and outside my comfort zone. And I don't like it. And so the fear turns to anger and then, and all of it is of course rooted in humor, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a very real truth there, uh, that I did not see in the film before. I only saw it as let's make fun of these, uh, dumb shits. Um, but I, but I think Mike judge is a, is a smarter writer than that. And I think he actually does feel for these people instead of just outright condemn them. Um, we are rooting for them to do the right thing. Um, and frustrated when they don't, but you know, a film that, that is not on their side would be like, screw these people. We're just totally on the main character side, but it's not that it really is just rooting for a general civility or intelligence or whatever it is. Um, and, and so just to think in terms of like the, the film festival, like there are a few things more, um, more rewarding than when like, you know, there, there's not much in this world that I am equipped to talk about. I feel very much like the, like Luke Wilson (laughs) in Uh idiocracy where it's like, well, look, I'm not smart, but I know that you, you use water and not Gatorade to, you know, grow crops. That's, it's sort of rudimentary. So like in, in this world, I feel like I'm not equipped to talk about much, but I can talk about movies and to talk about movies to people who have shown they're interested in movies, but also they know, they know instinctively you see that re that reaction. Like I mentioned last temptation of Christ and all, they just know all the, all the negative they've heard about it, but thankful. And so, and they respond with like, a, a resistance. Um, I say they, of course it's only, it's a handful of people here and there. Um, I say, an uh, something R rated and there's a bit, a bit of resistance, but there's also thankfully in many cases, a willingness to listen. And even if they don't agree with me, that's very reassuring. But then there are some who are like, Oh, you know what? I never thought of it that way. That's very, I, I'll have to look into that. And so there's just seeing idiocracy when I rewatching it, when I did having had this experience, which was a very positive experience all around. I liked that festival. I liked the conversations they were willing to have in a panel setting. Uh, it was great. Um, but I did definitely run across a couple of interactions that were, that were deeply frustrating, but the film actually got me thinking in terms of like, you know what though, it'd be so easy to just condemn and dismiss. And if idiocracy is unwilling to dismiss these characters outright, then you know, who am I Mm. to, uh, to act this way about people who think slightly differently about movies than I do. 